Pray with me as we begin. Heavenly Father, this morning I invite you just to open our hearts, crack the crust off of our hearts if you have to, to let us truly understand your heart and your love for us. I pray for the, uh, those affected in the uh, conflict in Israel and Ukraine. May you give them comfort and safety in all that they experience. So bless us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Last Sunday, just a week ago, less than a week ago, in Chicago, at the Chicago Marathon, something incredible happened. Here's what happened. Take a look. An amazing effort by Kilburn Kiptum for a new world record at the Bank of America Chicago Marathon. And Karen Pinkowski could not be happier as he hundredth at the finish line. Wow, a brand new measurable record, unofficial two hours and we don't even know. It's a 247 right now. He hasn't even hit 201 yet. He's been behind the finish line for a while. Get that official time, two hours and 30, whatever. Wow, this is the future for a man who said his family could not afford to get him to the track, for a man that went out on the roads in Kenya and put the work in, for a man that trained by himself and coached himself for a long time. This is what it's all about. Unbelievable. Kelvin Kipton, 23 years old, in his third ever marathon, sets a world record, two hours, 35 seconds. If you don't understand that feat, let me break it down for you a little bit. He ran 26.2 miles at an average pace of four minutes and 36 seconds per mile. There's not a person in our church that could run one mile at four minutes and 36 seconds. I don't think there's a person in our church that could run one lap around the track at that pace, four minutes and 36 seconds. It, that's ridiculous. Uh, here's what's even more ridiculous. He had negative splits, which means he ran the last half marathon faster than the first half marathon, which means he sped up as he ran. This is ridiculous. Unbelievable. The world watched as Kelvin Hipton sets the world record wearing his, his patented Nike, uh, what are they called? N Nike Alpha Flies. They have this, uh, I think it's like a carbon fiber plate in the bottom that gives you a little extra spring on every single step. And he sets the world record. Unbelievable. From the time that gun went off, he knew what he had to do. 26.2 miles, every inch of the way, every mile of the way, he knew where to go to that finish line. Now here's the thing. It would be ridiculous and silly for him that as he's blazing along this route, racing along, he gets past mile 26, and that's when the race really begins, the last two-tenths of a mile. He, he's cruising along, he's 100 yards from the finish, and he says, I'm tired of running. Slows down to a walk. He says, I'm starving. He jumps the barricade and he goes over to Taco Bell and orders a burrito. This would never happen because he knows what he has to do to win the race. He knows where the end is and he's going to get there. When that gun goes off, he knows the route. He knows what he's got to do and he will do whatever it takes to get to the very end. As we've been seeing the heart of Christ unfold, there's so many different attributes and descriptions of his heart for us, but I think one of the most powerful ones is simply that Jesus loves us to the very end. While we often wonder what God's heart is like, there's one thing that's certain. The heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers doesn't just flash with tenderness occasionally. 
It's not temporary. It doesn't sputter along with, with highs and lows about how he feels about you and me. His, his gentleness and his loneliness, it, it, it doesn't ebb and flow because it's who Christ is. Steady, consistent, everlasting. When our loveliness dissipates and withers and it's gone, he still loves us. When there's nothing good in us, he still loves us. And he loves us to the very end. If you've got your Bible with you, I invite you to open it with me to John chapter 13. It's in the New Testament. It's one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can use the Blue Pew Bible and turn to page 763. You'll read the same words I'm reading. Um, I love the book of John. Uh, John, he, he and Jesus had a special relationship. They were very close. In fact, John would tell you first that he's John the Beloved, the one that Jesus loved more than the rest, perhaps. And uh, they have this cool relationship. And John gives more space in his gospel than all the other gospels as he fixates on this last closing scene of Jesus' life here on earth. And he gives us uh, the beginning of the end of Jesus' life in this crucifixion and this trial scene right there in John chapter 13. Here's a little more context before you we, we read together. Jesus' ministry so far has been really, really tough. It's been hard. He's been tired and hungry physically. He's been misunderstood and mistreated by friends and family relationally. He's been accused from religious and political leaders publicly. But his hard ministry is nothing compared to what he's about to face. It's like uh, standing in a drizzly rain when you're about to be drowned. It doesn't compare. Um, it's, it's like someone shouting insults at you when you're walking towards a guillotine. Hell, not metaphorically, but actually, this horror, this condemnation, this darkness, this death, it's opening its jaws for Jesus as he's headed to the cross. And John begins the beginning of the end in John chapter 13, verse 1. Here's what it says. John says this. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And this last line is the important part. It says this. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. He loved us to the end, the very end. He came to the cliff of the cross and he didn't stop. He just kept on walking. With the weight of the world, of the sins of the world on his shoulders, he musters the courage to take it to the cross to delete the punishment of sin forever. And with love in his eyes, he lays down on this cross and gets pegged to it like you'd put a flyer on a bulletin board, except this flyer says, I love you to the end. See, Jesus' love is just different. He doesn't love like you and I love. We love with conditions, and he loves unconditionally. We, we love with reservations, and he loves not holding anything back. We love timidly, and Jesus loves fiercely. It's kind of like the difference between dogs and cats, uh, now, I realize I'm going to lose half the congregation after this next statement, but I'm a dog man. I love dogs, and they are far superior than cats. Can I get a witness, anybody? Uh, all the haters are standing up and leaving. I got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'll tell you why they're superior animals. Here it is. I've had a couple dogs in my life. 
This is my first dog. Her name was Magley. She was a boxer, just an incredible dog. She didn't have her tail docked and she was unbelievable, just a great dog. It didn't matter if I had been gone for a week on a trip or 10 seconds out the back door. When I came back in the door, every single time she would rush over to me and sit down and smile at me with that big tongue and she'd lick me and she'd wag her whole body as that tail would whip around. She loved me wouldn't hold anything back. And there's nothing I could do to stop her love from me. It was unconditional, no matter what, she just loved me. And that's how dogs love. Cats love too. But it comes with attitude. They love when they want to love. They love if it was their idea first. They love if they have to love, or if it's convenient for them. And they love passively as they brush against you as they walk by with attitude. Am I right? See, Jesus, he loves dogs more because he loves like dogs love too. 100% unconditional, no reservations. That's the kind of love Jesus has for you. And when Jesus says he loves you, there is no prenup agreement just in case. He doesn't love with an escape route in mind if things don't go as he planned. He doesn't love with part of his heart and the rest is guarded so that he's protected. He loves with every part of himself and it's till the very end. And when John tells us that Jesus loves us to the very end, John's pulling back the veil of Jesus' heart that you look straight into who he is. You peer into the depths of Christ's heart. His heart for his own, it's not like an arrow that is shot and slowly descends over time. His love for us is not like a runner that starts out of the gate strong and mighty and then slowly gets slower and slower. His heart's like an avalanche that just builds momentum and snow as it barrels down the mountain. It's like a forest fire that grows with intensity as it gathers things to burn. And as Jesus goes to the cross and as the light of the world begins to be sm smothered out, you see how much he loves us till the very end. Just for a moment, let's, let's step into the shoes of Jesus at those last moments as he's there at the crucifixion. Uh, we know what it was like, or we've read about it. In fact, Isaiah puts it this way. Here it is on the screen. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him, Jesus, the sins of us all. That's a lot of weight, y'all. I mean, you know what it's like when you've uh, sinned, or even when you've just hurt someone, maybe a spouse or, or a friend, and you, you've gone against them, and you, you know the feeling of guilt and even just a little bit of guilt is unbearable, yet multiply that times 8 billion people on the planet and Jesus carries it all. That's a lot of guilt. That's a lot of sin. That's crushing pressure. In fact, the Bible describes Jesus as our sins are crushing his physical body. One of my favorite um, authors, Ellen White, she writes in the book, The Desire of Ages, as she describes how he's handling this. Here's what she says. Here it is on the screen. She says, the Savior made no murmur of complaint. His face remained calm and serene, but great drops of sweat stood upon his brow. There was no pitying hand to wipe the death dew from his face, nor words of sympathy and unchanging fidelity to stay his human heart. And there's Jesus 
He's alone and he's dying, literally being crushed by our sins, yet he never pulls the ripcord. He never reaches for the life preserver. He doesn't reach for that ejection seat to get him out of this mess. He did none of that because he loves us not just part of the way, but all the way till the very end. And while his physical heart couldn't handle the pressure of sin, the heart of Christ bursts with his love for you and me. It's a really personal experience, Jesus dying on the cross. I think sometimes we look at the crucifixion and Jesus' death and we think, yeah, that's just part of the plan. I mean, that had to happen. And way back before humans were created, God the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they, they spend time, this council of peace, as they plan what will happen. And, and they say, okay, here's the plan. Now just carry out the plan. And, and Jesus, you're the one that dies. And so just get on with it. It's part of the plan. Yet for Jesus in this moment, it's incredibly personal to him. You can hear it in his words as, as he is on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not just quoting Psalm 22. He's not just quoting David's writings because it makes sense that he should throw some scripture in there. In fact, Jesus, he doesn't say David's word in Hebrew how it is written. He speaks it in his own personal tongue of Aramaic. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He feels this gap that grows between his father and him as he's there on the cross The sin wedge is splitting them apart, and it's a new feeling. It's a new experience. He's never felt it before. Forever, this communion with his father has been his oxygen. It's his food. It's his drink. It's his everything. And now he feels the disconnect between himself and his father. And yet he chooses death over life. He chooses us over him. He chooses his own over himself. It's interesting that John, as he describes this scene, he says that he, having loved his own, that's possessiveness, that's ownership. See, we humans, we love our possessiveness. We love our stuff. We always stand up for what's ours and what we deserve. My neighbors, uh, I've been, had these neighbors for two and a half years, two years since we've lived in this house. They just moved about a month ago. I got some new neighbors. They're stellar people. Their names are Matt and Melanie. You know they're high-quality people if they're named Matt. <laughs> they move in. I, I meet them about a, a... Well, actually, not even moved in, but they've been at the house quite a bit. And, and I, I met them one of the first days they were there. And right from the get-go, we connected. We exchanged cell phone numbers. And we've been friends. They're good people. They're moving from Tennessee down to Florida. They're just high-quality. I really like them. Well, not too long after they moved in, I noticed that there were some, um, some marker flags that were put out throughout their yard and, and some even into my yard. And I thought, oh, well, they're, they're probably marking this because they're pulling up some of the bushes and they probably need the utilities marked. And so the, after about a week, the ones that were in my yard, I pulled them up and threw them away because it's my yard. As I'm mowing the yard about two weeks ago, Matt, he comes out and he, he walks over to me and I, I say, hey, man, what's up? And we get fist bumps and we're just cool. A couple of guys hanging out, you know, and he's bald too. I mean, every Matt apparently is bald. We're just talking, and, and he says, hey, man, I, I got some bad news. Bad news? I mean, we're just neighbors, bro. Like, we just, this just happened. Like, what do you mean bad news? And he says, well, uh, did you ever see those little flags, uh, you know, out here? And I said, yeah, 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 for sure. I threw them away. And he, he said, well, we had our property surveyed, and my line is, is right over here. And I said, you, you mean over here on my yard? And he said, well, it was your yard. 
And the, the, the positive side of me said, this is the best news ever. That's less grass I have to mow. <laughs> and the human side of me said, that's my land. Get off of my property. You see, we have this possessive idea, and it's a selfish way that we possess things. Yet Jesus, he possesses in a different kind of way. He doesn't selfishly say, you're mine, I want you. In the most humble and gentle way, he says, these are my own. And maybe it's because he's looking forward to the cross and he knows what's going to happen. And he, he has sense his possessiveness because he says, those that accept what I'm about to do, they are mine because they want to be mine. Or maybe he's looking at the great controversy, this battle between Christ and Satan that happens in our hearts every day. And he says, the, this is a battle and Satan wants them, but he can't have them and I'm not a quitter and they are mine. He fights for us till the very end. He loves us till the very end. And he declares to the whole world that you are his, safe and wrapped up in the folds of his heart with the love that no one can understand. And I can't imagine the torment that was going on in the heart of Jesus. I mean, with the blink of an eye, he could have said a command and the myriads of angels from heaven would have come down and pulled him off the cross. Uh, in a simple breath, he could have uh, ruined the plan of redemption, but saved himself in that moment. And no one would have blamed him. You wouldn't have. I wouldn't have either. Because it's in that moment that Jesus truly could have been reunited with his father. He couldn't even see past it. In fact, Ellen White, she says in The Desire of Ages, here's what she says. The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. He feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separation would be eternal. And as our salvation weighed in the balance, Jesus makes the ultimate choice to finish the race, to finish the plan, to love us until the very end. He'd do whatever it takes. He wouldn't quit. And with a final breath, with the last bit of strength in his body, Jesus utters the most selfless and love-filled words as he declares about this plan of redemption. He says, it is is finished. In 1997, 25 years ago, at the Ironman World Championship right there in Kona, Hawaii, one of the most famous finishing scenes happens. Uh, if you've never done an Ironman, it's a pretty grueling task, and, and it's not easy to get to Kona for the World Championships. You either have to qualify by posting a ridiculously fast Ironman time at some Ironman race that year, or you can enter the lottery and hopefully get chosen, but in order to get into the lottery, you have to complete at least 10 Ironman races. Uh, it's, it's almost impossible to get there. And the Ironman World Championship in Kona, it is... Uh, a very difficult race, not just because it's an Ironman, but because of the conditions. It's so hot there. The humidity is out of control. And these athletes, it's the pros, it's the elites, and they go there and they swim 2.4 miles in the ocean. Then they get on their bike and they ride 112 miles on those blistering streets. And then they have to run a full marathon, 26.2 miles, with the heat bothering them right through the lava fields. I mean, it's, it's an unbelievable feat to do this. And in 1997, the eyes of the world watched, especially the women's pro race, as two iron women, Wendy Ingram and Sean Welch, two of the favorites, were battling it out. 
All day long, they'd gone back and forth on who was ahead and who was winning. And as the run continued, Sean gets ahead. She gets a little gap over Wendy. And as she's coming down the last couple hundred yards, her body begins to give out on her. There's no more calories in her body. She's dehydrated. She's absolutely exhausted. And with a couple hundred yards to the finish line, the very end of the race, her body collapses. Her legs buckle and she finds herself on the pavement. She's very aware of two different things. One is that she's so close to the very end of the race. It's just right around the corner. She knows it's right there. She's very aware that the end is in sight. She's also very aware that Wendy, her competitor, is very close as well, closing in on her. And so with every bit of strength she can muster, with her legs cramping, she gets to her feet and stumbles forward a few steps and collapses again. And this continues as she's moving closer and closer to the finish line. She sees Wendy coming up behind her. They get to the patented Iron Man carpet, this this rug that's laid out right before the finish line. They're just 10 yards away from the finish line. And here's what happens. Both athletes could see the finish line, could see the end. Both of them knew what they had to do, and they would do whatever it takes to get to the finish line. Even if it took them crawling, they would do whatever it takes to get to the very end. If you want to know what the heart of Christ looks like, just look at the cross. And if you look close enough, you'll see a God that is gentle and lowly. He's accessible. You can get to him. You'd see a God who's empathetic, that knows what it's like to be in your shoes because he's been here. He's done that. You'd see a God that can save even to the uttermost. You'd see a God that is a close friend that just wants to be around you. You'd see a God that loves us then and loves us now, and you'd see a God that loves us even to the very end. And when you see all that, you truly then know the heart of Christ. May you allow yourself to sink deeply into his heart, to experience who he really is and how much he loves you. Heavenly Father, we're amazed by your love for us. We don't deserve it, but we're so grateful. And as you love us, we love you right back. God, we can't wait to see you. In Jesus' name.